Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This morning we will be studying verses 13 through 18. 13 through 18 as we finish uh, this chapter. Hear the word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray for his help. Our God, we thank you that by the Holy Spirit you moved and carried along the Apostle Paul to write these words that are relevant to us today that the Holy Spirit desires for us to hear, for challenge and for encouragement. We pray that the Spirit also would work in our hearts now as we listen. Help us to receive with meekness this word, that it would be planted within our hearts, that it would cause some to be born again and cause many of us, to grow in our faith, our understanding, and our love of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to be clear as I mention this story. I haven't actually read this story. I'm not recommending the book necessarily. But many of you might know about the story called A Picture of Dorian Gray, written by Oscar Wilde. It's about a young man named Dorian, and he has a portrait painted of himself in his youth, 
And then when he looks at that portrait, he admires himself. He thinks that he's very handsome. And so he wants to stay youthful looking and handsome looking for as long as he lives. And so somehow he exchanges his soul with the portrait. His soul goes into the portrait and then the man in the portrait goes on to him and he becomes what that portrait looks like. And so day after day, he is for, for as, as long as he goes on doing this, he looks like that man in the portrait. He looks, looks young and handsome while his soul is trapped in that portrait. Well, with his youth, he goes and he does foolish, immoral, and sinful things. And so every time that he sins, the soul in the picture gets uglier and uglier more and more horrific looking. So not only is his soul dying while he is living in this young body, but his soul is also getting uglier and uglier the more he sins. We could say that for Dorian Gray, his outward body is being renewed day by day. He is looking young day after day, and yet his inner self is wasting away. It wastes away so much that he tries to lock up the portrait and keep anybody from seeing the ugliness of who he really is. Now, I don't know that Oscar Wilde uh, knew about 2 Corinthians or had read this passage, but it is exactly the opposite of what Paul says here. In verse 16, Paul says that for himself and for the Christian, it's the outer self, including our physical bodies, that is wasting away. But it's the inner self that is renewed day by day. Paul has been writing about himself especially, but in general for all Christians, that he is a man who suffers a lot. And in his ministry, he has suffered. And we looked last week at verses 7 to 12, where he gave us that image of jars of clay, that he is being constantly afflicted. And yet somehow, by the power of God, he is not kept from being crushed. He said at the end of verse 12 that death was at work in him. In other words, his outer self is wasting away. But he gives us in this passage more reasons about why he doesn't give up. Why he continues to preach the gospel, why he continues to follow Christ, even though his outer self is wasting away, even though he is constantly being afflicted. We've looked at some of those reasons in in these last few chapters because he used the same word in verse 1 of chapter 4. He doesn't lose heart. He doesn't give up because he has a glorious ministry, a glorious new covenant ministry where the spirit gives people life. And now you look down at verse 16. He uses the same word. So we do not lose heart. So he's continuing with this same theme. And so this morning we're going to look at two reasons, two more reasons why 
he doesn't lose heart or why he doesn't give up. Uh, The first reason is in verse 13 to 15. And then he says, so I don't give up. But then after he says that in verse 16, he gives us more reasons why he doesn't give up. So two main reasons. And this is what we want to focus on for ourselves. We're going to continue talking about why we as Christians should not give up even as we continue to face affliction and suffering, especially as followers of Christ and preaching the gospel. So the first reason that Paul gives for why we do not lose heart or give up is in verses 13 to 15, he knows that the gospel is going to have fruit. There's an outward fruit produced through him preaching the gospel. Let's read again what he says in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of of God. So even though death is at work in him, even though he is a jar of clay, frail and mortal, he continues to be confident in speaking the gospel because, verse 13, he has a spirit of faith. And I think that should be a capital S. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that he has who gives him the gift of faith. And what is this gift of faith? Well, he compares it to what someone else wrote in a psalm. He's quoting Psalm 116 when it says, I believed and so I spoke. Maybe your Bible has quotation marks there. He's quoting Psalm 116. In that psalm, there was a man who had been in trouble. Like David often was, this man was in trouble. He felt Maybe like Paul feels here when he is afflicted and he's about to be crushed. And yet he knows that because God is his God, God has the power to rescue him. So here he is pressed down, about to be crushed. And yet the spirit gives him faith. The spirit helps him to believe, even though it looks like there's no way out of this. I know God can rescue me. And so he speaks. He calls out to God. God, please help me. So that in itself is a sign of faith. It is faith to go to God and say, God, I know that this looks impossible, but I know that you can rescue me out of this. So he speaks to God. God rescues him. And so then he writes that psalm to tell the story. I believed. I had faith you would rescue me, so I spoke. Paul takes that psalm and he says, So I also believe. I have that same spirit of faith. The Holy Spirit is in me that helped that man, and so I speak. But now Paul, when he's talking about speaking, he's not talking about praying to God for help. He's talking about speaking the gospel. And we know that because of the context of chapters 3 and 4, he's talking about being a a minister of the new covenant. 
and because of verse 15, when he's talking about grace extending to more and more people, this is his confidence that he can continue to speak the gospel even when he is afflicted and persecuted and being crushed because God has given him a spirit of faith. Now, what is the spirit of faith to believe? Uh, That's what he explains starting in verse 14. What is it that he knows because of this spirit of faith? Well, he says, I know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us, me, with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So his first confidence, the first thing he's confident about has to do with the Corinthians, the church. He's confident to continue speaking to them because he knows that the God who raised Jesus will raise Paul. And the God who raised Paul will also raise the Corinthians. And that altogether they will enter into the presence of Jesus. And so Paul has confidence that when he preaches to the church, those who believe are not going to be lost. They're not going to fall away. They will be preserved to the very end. So even as Paul is suffering and even facing some of the suffering from within the Corinthians, some of them may be wolves in the church, he continues to speak to the church Because he loves them, he knows God has saved them, he knows God will raise them on the last day, and that altogether they will be raised to go into the presence of Jesus. I'm not saying that we should have a church cemetery, but I do appreciate the symbolism of church cemeteries. Maybe you've seen some churches with cemeteries. And what I appreciate about the symbolism is the idea that one day Christ will return and all who are already dead will rise up out of the ground and everyone in that church cemetery who's a believer is going to come up together. And I wonder if actually the first person that that they will see is one another before they see Christ in the air they will raise up together and they'll say, hi, hey, you were, you were my sister in Christ for 40 years and I've missed you. Good to see you again. Let's go see Jesus together. We will all enter into the presence of Jesus Christ together. Now, you don't need to have a church cemetery to do that uh, because Paul says that in verse 14, that is What's going to happen? When Paul is raised from the dead, he's going to be in the same room in the presence of Christ with these Corinthian believers and with the other churches that he has given his life to speak the gospel to. And so Paul is confident that he can be their servant for Jesus' sake. He can intertwine his life with theirs. Because he knows even their resurrection together is intertwined. They truly are a church family 
They will literally come back alive together. And so he continues to speak. His words are not wasted on them. He continues to devote himself to his church. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. That you can speak the word of God to one another. You can encourage one another with the word. You can teach one another. Maybe some of you who are Sunday school teachers, when you are all raised together from, from, the, from the grave, you will be in the presence of Jesus Christ and you'll say, hey, I taught you in Sunday school. I taught you about Jesus. And now we're seeing him together. Whether you teach in Sunday school or you're just in conversations, you encourage, you teach, and you correct. You correct one another because it helps us follow Jesus. And it's what God uses to keep us to the end so that together we will be raised. So Paul is confident speaking to the church. But then he talks about his confidence preaching to the world, to unbelievers. He says in verse 14 that grace extends to more and more people. And he gives this cause and effect like uh, playing pool, where you hit the white ball, and it hits the black ball, and it hits the green ball, and then the green ball goes in the pocket. Here's the cause and effect. Paul preaches the gospel. It leads to people experiencing the grace of God. And that leads to increasing thanksgiving, because those people give thanks to God. And then... Increased thanksgiving leads to the glory of God. So why should the frail jar keep preaching, going around preaching in synagogues where he gets beaten up, going to cities where they throw rocks at him? Why should he keep doing that? Because he's confident that God will save people through his preaching which leads to thanksgiving, which leads to the glory of God. Now he says, this is all for your sake. How is it for their sake? Well, because people give thanks when good things happen to them. And so when Paul preached to them, they give thanks because something good has happened to them. They received the grace of God. Paul keeps preaching because he knows the gospel will be successful. He knows Christ's kingdom will come. Jesus will be the victor. No matter what it looks like in the world around us, Jesus reigns. The gospel will bear fruit. So he preaches. But then in the next part of the passage... He tells us that he is going to continue to preach because he knows also that God is doing something in him. Not only will the gospel have fruit outside of him, but that his suffering is working something in him. And so in verses 16 to 18, we see that suffering produces fruit Within. And Paul gives us three contrasts, one in each verse. 
The first contrast, he says, is between something that's outer and something that is inner. He says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our outer self, or your Bible might say the outer man, that includes our bodies. Our physical bodies are wasting away. Our bodies are mortal. The word there that we translate as wasting away is just the word destroy. Your body is being destroyed. God is destroying your body. So think about it this way. When you get sick, as you get old, as you wake up and feel new aches and pains in your body that you had never experienced in your youth, think of it this way. God is destroying my body. God is decommissioning this outer, uh, this outer self He is decommissioning it to get rid of it to give me an upgraded body. One day we will be clothed in immortality. One day we will receive glorious immortal bodies. But to receive a glorious immortal body, you have to die. The old body has to be destroyed. And so like a, like a gadget or a device, the device has to stop working. I mean, it doesn't these days have to stop working, but they make it to stop working so that you will get a new one. You'll get the, the upgrade. You'll get the better one. God is actively destroying your body, making it waste away to give you a better one. But... The outer self is not just your physical body. The outer self is also what the Bible calls our flesh. And our flesh can include things like uh, our personality, our habits, our predisposition to things. Have you noticed that some people are tempted towards some sins and other people have absolutely no temptation with those sins? Why is that? Because we're made differently. We have not only different physical bodies, but we have different personalities. And certain personalities have certain tendencies to sin that other personalities don't. We have habits. The way that we grow up contributes to to how our flesh is used to behaving. You, You have certain ways of responding to things based on your habits, how you grew up. And so your flesh is your old sinful self. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? When you're a Christian, you get a new heart. Your nature is changed You are now dead to sin according to your new nature. You have Romans 6. You are dead in Christ because you've been baptized with Christ. 
That's your new nature. But then you have Romans 7. Romans 7, you are still fighting against this body that you live in with all its habits, with all the temptations, with all your predisposition and personality. And it's a flesh that is fallen. It's a flesh that is sinful. And we're looking forward to Romans 8 when we are uh, all groaning and we are set free from the groaning, which is what Romans 8 is about. But right now on this earth, we're in Romans 7. And God is destroying our flesh. Our flesh is wasting away. John Owen, in Mortification of Sin, he gives a pretty gruesome image of this old man, our old man, that's how the Bible talks about our flesh, our old man being nailed to the cross. That's what happens when you have faith in Christ. Your old man is crucified. But he says he's not dead yet. The old man is wriggling on the cross, gasping for life. He wants to live. He wants to come back. And when we give in to temptation, we are carrying some water and bread and we are reviving the old man as he hangs there on the cross and sometimes we really just want to take the nails out and we want to take the man down from the cross and we want to restore him back to health we want that old man that flesh within us to live again and so the bible says romans 8 13 if you want to live put the old man to death. Don't let that man survive. Kill him while he's hanging there on the cross. Don't revive him and bring him back to health. So this is what we're doing throughout life. Putting that old man to death. He is being destroyed. If by the Spirit you put him to death, you will live. So it's God. God is destroying your outer self, your sinful flesh. And you have the responsibility to put him to death by the Spirit. So how does God do that? Well, a lot of times it's through these afflictions. It is through suffering that God removes those comforts from us. God tests your patience and he gives you situations through trials that will test your patience because you thought you were a patient person. But then you realize, oh, that old man, he's back alive again. You thought you weren't angry until God sends something that really makes you angry. And you realize, oh, that old man, He's still kicking there on the cross. I need to put him to death. So God sends afflictions to help us destroy the outer self. But as the outer self is being destroyed, he goes on to say in verse 16, the inner self is being renewed day by day. There's a renewal on the inside. In chapter 5, he's going to say, we are new creations. And here he's saying the new creation is renewed. 
It gets newer and newer. Uh, what he's really saying is the new creation takes over you. As your, your old self starts to die, it's replaced with the life of the new self. The new creation is being renewed in your body. And that happens only through the affliction, only as the outer man gets destroyed. But God is doing a good work in us to renew our inner selves. And how does it happen or when does it happen? It happens day by day. And notice the the words sound familiar to the end of chapter 3, where he says that you behold the glory of the Lord and you're transformed degree by degree, glory by glory. Day by day, as God whittles away the outer self, you are supposed to look to Christ, behold the glory of the Lord, and day after day after day, from one degree to another, you are transformed to be like Christ. The inner self is being renewed. Unfortunately, our sanctification cannot be microwaved. It cannot be done in two minutes. But instead, it's going to take our whole lives. And instead, it's going to take lots of suffering. If we want to be like Christ, if we want the inner man renewed, it's going to take a lot of suffering to get that outer man destroyed wasting away so that's the first contrast and then the second contrast is between what is light and what is heavy in verse 17 he starts with the word for so he's showing us there's another reason to not lose heart he says in verse 17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the Victorian era of England, they did not have very good medicine, even at that point, middle, late 1800s. They did not have antiseptics to keep wounds from getting infected to kill the bacteria. And so they would perform a surgery open you up and the doctors would put their dirty hands with lots of germs and bacteria that they didn't know were on their hands but they would put that bacteria into your wound so you had that problem you also didn't have very good anesthesia in fact as they were trying to invent anesthetics uh, their patients were dying uh, because they couldn't figure out a way to keep the person alive during surgery uh, but also have the anesthesia work So let's say you have a leg that is infected. If you don't get surgery, there is a good chance it's going to spread through your body and you're going to die. But you could opt for surgery. But if you were to get surgery, there's a chance that you will get more infected. 
And not to mention, the surgery is gruesome and terrible. There's no anesthesia, and they're going to remove your leg. So think about it. Would you want to go through the surgery even knowing that there's only a 50% chance that you will survive? Is that 50% chance worth it to you to go through all that excruciating pain? Think about that. But now think about today. Today we have anesthesia, and we understand germs and bacteria. And people usually don't get infected through surgeries. Surgeries are very routine. You can have an outpatient surgery. You go in one day, you're out the same day. Most people don't think twice if the doctor says you needed the surgery, it's going to heal you. We know that the surgery works. People say, okay, I don't want the surgery, but if it is going to heal me, I will get it. So why is it? You might think twice 150 years ago, but you don't really think twice these days. It's because you know that the potential reward far outweighs the momentary pain of a surgery. Our problem is that as we go through life, we don't really believe what verse 17 says. We don't really believe that a light and momentary affliction is going to produce a far greater reward. And that if we go through this affliction, we will have that reward. When we complain, and we doubt, and we grow bitter as we go through afflictions, it's because deep down inside, we've concluded This affliction is bad for me. God's not preparing health and life for me at the end of this. All I've got is this right in front of me. Paul calls this a light, momentary affliction. He's not saying these are paper cuts. Oh, when you get a paper cut, it's producing an eternal weight of glory. No, he is experiencing real pain. Think again about verses 8 and 9. He feels as if he might be about to die. He feels as if he is nearly driven to despair, but escapes at the last moment. He's going through real suffering. He's not trying to make light of suffering. He's not saying, no big deal when you suffer. One man said, unless afflictions prove real sorrows, they will not produce the fruits of of sorrow. So the affliction has to really feel like a sorrow. You can't just try to fake through it. You can't pretend it's no big deal. No, it hurts. It hurts a lot. But he calls it light and momentary because he's making a comparison. It's relative. It's light compared to the eternal weight of glory. Why do millions of mothers across history 
have children? Why go through the painful experience of having a child? Because you know it is momentary. The labor will be over at some point. And (laughs) you know that it will be far outweighed by the joy of having a child. So the reward, the joy of having the child is worth the light momentary affliction. Paul says the reward is an eternal weight of glory. What is the reward? What is this glory? Well, the word glory literally means weight. And it comes from this idea of treasure. So think about a king, his glory. His glory would be in his palace. His palace is full of treasures. And he could show you all his gold. And if you were to weigh all his gold and all his treasures, you would see how glorious the king is. And so God, when we describe his glory, it's describing his worth, it's describing his treasure, it's describing everything about him that is incredible and and amazing. And the, the reward that awaits those who are his is his own glory that he is going to share with his people in eternity. You get to share in the grace of God. The great heaviness, the weight, the, the, the bigness of the love and grace of God, he shares with his people. The new creation that is a result of the goodness of God, you get to participate in his glory. So it's an eternal glory, and it's a heavy, it's a huge weight of glory. It's a glory that is beyond all comparison, that cannot be compared. So here's what Paul's saying. Think about the worst things in your life. Think about the worst things that have ever happened to you. Think about the pain that you've experienced. Think about all the ways that people have hurt you. Think about all the physical suffering that you have endured. Feel the weight of the pain. Remember how you were afflicted and you felt like you were going to be crushed by the weight of it. Put it on the scale. And it seems very heavy. But then Paul says, if you take the eternal weight of glory and you put that on the scale, it will drop. And that pain that has felt so heavy to you during your life, it will feel as light as a feather in comparison to the weight of the eternal glory that is yours. 
And so notice that he uses the word, in verse 17, he uses the word prepare. The affliction prepares the glory. You can't have the glory without the affliction that prepares it. Do you want an eternal weight of glory? Then you will have to experience the affliction. So, be encouraged. This is an encouraging verse. Yeah, no, no, but none of us wants to be afflicted. None of us wants to suffer in life. But be encouraged that when God sends the afflictions, it is not for you to wonder if he loves you less. It is not for you to conclude that he dislikes you or that he doesn't care about you. But that when God sends these afflictions, it is because he loves you so much. Because he loves you so much, he wants you to have an eternal weight of glory. And that glory can only be prepared through afflictions. This is what God holds out for his people. But then we come to the third contrast, which is between what's seen and unseen in verse 18. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So remember when I was talking about the surgery and whether you would choose the surgery? Uh, you, you don't think twice about the surgery because you see the reward. You see the benefit. And so Paul is saying here that the only way for you to understand that there's a weight of glory in front of you is to look at what is unseen. Don't look at what is seen. And so our problem is when we interpret life, we interpret the world by what we see. Think about Abraham and his faith. Genesis 22, God says, I want you to kill your son. And in Hebrews 11, we are told that somehow Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. I'm sure Abraham was up all night wrestling with what to do. I'm not saying, you know, he didn't feel the affliction. He must have felt how difficult that decision was. And yet, he was willing to kill his son because he had the faith to see something that he could not see with his eyes. Somehow, God will raise Isaac from the dead. Somehow, God is good in giving me this command. Now, I'm not, we don't repeat that. You don't get voices from God telling you to do that. This was a very specific instance of God giving Abraham that command. But it shows the faith. And that's what that story teaches us all as the Bible goes on. The faith of Abraham. To see what can't be seen in front of him. 
If you calculate your pain in this life, the pain's not worth it. But if you add into your calculations the life to come, then it becomes worth it. So maybe there are some of you here that you claim to be a Christian. You say that you belong to Christ, but you're really living your life as if the things that are seen are what are going to last. You're living your life like the rest of the world does. You care about your stuff. You care about your relationships. You care about money. You care about your job. Those are the things that always consume everything. You are living for this world. The Bible calls you to look to the things that are unseen because that is what is eternal. And the problem is that when you face afflictions, suffering is going to crush you. It will drive you to despair because you put all your chips unto the table for this world and this life and getting more stuff. And you're going to realize your outer self will waste away. You will die and it will all be gone. And so you will be crushed through afflictions. For those of us who are believers, this is encouraging. Because as we look to our suffering and we experience it in this life, we realize that it's transient. Verse 18 says it's transient. The things that are seen are passing away. Maybe you've had a dream where you thought the dream was very real, but then you wake up and you realize the dream was just a dream. Dreams are transient. They pass away. They vanish quickly. I don't know exactly what heaven will be like, but I wonder if thousands and thousands of years from now, we will look back on our lives that are like 80 years on this earth, and it'll feel like a dream. And the worst things in your life right now the worst things that you could possibly experience, you'll look back and you'll say, yeah, that was weird. I can't believe that happened to me. Because it'll feel like nothing. It'll feel like waking up from a bad dream. Because eternity goes on forever. Even our suffering now is so short-lived. But then finally, there might be some here who don't claim to follow Christ. You're not giving your life to trusting Him, repenting of your sin. You need to understand that when verse 18 says the unseen things are eternal, that means that there is also an eternal condemnation. There is a place of eternal suffering. And you can go from a life full of affliction to an eternity full of much more suffering. Much worse suffering. Your 
momentary afflictions do not produce for you an eternal weight of glory, but they are only a small taste for you of an eternal weight of more suffering. And so to you, God says, don't look to the things that are seen. Don't look at all the things that the world puts in front of you. Don't think that what matters in your life is just jobs and relationships and money and stuff. Look to what is unseen. Look to what is eternal. And if you do, you will follow Christ. You will trust him as Savior. You will trust him because he is the only one who can save you from your sins because he died on the cross to save you from that eternal condemnation, to take the punishment for sin on himself so that if you will trust in him, if you will turn from your sins and live for him, then you will have eternal life. And then for all of us, we will know this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are our loving Father, that we belong to you, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we can have confidence, we who trust in Christ and rely upon him for salvation, we have confidence that you are truly working all things together for our good. For you have called us according to your purpose. In ourselves, in our flesh, it is hard to believe. Give us more of your spirit to look upon you with eyes of faith. Show us the vanity of the things that are seen. Help us to have the eyes to see the invisible and eternal things. We ask these things through Jesus Christ. Amen.